Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn together to the 103rd Psalm. It's been my habit, uh, my tradition here, uh, and I think all the times that I've been able to be here on the Lord's Day prior to Thanksgiving, uh, to turn our attention to these matters of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and probably the text that I have meditated on, meditated on most often uh, <coughs> over the years uh, has been Psalm 103. And there are uh, so many ways in which we could look at uh, this psalm. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the first uh, 14 verses. Our concentration this morning is going to be on the uh, beginning of the psalm. A Psalm of David, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray and ask God's help as we look into his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that we can be in your house, that we can sing your praises, that we can admonish one another in these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that we can meditate upon the reality that you have loaded us daily with your blessings and benefits. And Father, to uh, contemplate uh, the hymn that we sang, that eternity would be too short to utter all your praise. Now, Father, we pray for such a vision of who you are and such an embrace of your good gifts, which do indeed surround us. Our Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to fresh praise, to fresh thanksgiving. We ask, Heavenly Father, enlighten our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On several occasions, I have had to wear a heart monitor for some extended period of time while being monitored in a hospital. Now, if you've ever had a... Uh, uh, a checkup you've most likely had if you're of a certain age, uh, an EKG, and that is they will strap some wires uh, to your chest and they'll 
uh, push a button and it'll give a, a, a very a brief reading of what's going on in your heart. It's kind of like a snapshot of your heart. But a heart monitor, which is about the size of a large remote control, uh, you'll wear it in a pocket on your hospital gown and those wires are attached to your chest uh, in several different places and they will monitor the rhythms of your heart over an extended period of time over some days. And they'll be able to look at it and, and look at the peaks and valleys and uh, on the basis of that determine how well your heart is functioning. And again, the benefit of the heart monitor over the EKG is its ability to measure the variety of situations that the heart will undergo, stress, rest, whatever the case might be, uh, versus the EKG. Because the true condition of a heart is not seen in a moment. It is seen over a variety of providences over a number of different things in our lives. That's true of our physical heart and it's true of our spiritual hearts. So sometimes when somebody says to you, how you're doing, you may say, well, how am I doing right now at this particular moment uh, in the last few seconds or how am I doing in general? And so let's imagine that you wore a heart monitor or a soul monitor over the last month. And it's time to come in now for your checkup. And we're going to look together at the steady stream of recordable data. And we're going to look at the peaks and valleys of your heart, of your thoughts, of your emotion, of your interaction with God, of your interaction with others. And we're going to kind of see how is it with you. And if we could look at the data and look at what's going on there, would we see that it's full of self, full of fear, full of anxiety, full of worry, that it's full of anger or bitterness, that this is the lust and this is the complaining of your soul? Would it be found as you looked at it and said, ah, this is when you were picking over the faults of others and this is the time that somebody slighted you? Would the data reveal over a period of a month that your heart or soul is inwardly focused? Or would it show that in regular intervals it is lifted upward? Would the most common spike, as it were, of the reading be that it is a heart lost in wonder, love, and praise? This psalm is exhorting us to just that kind of life. I believe that it is the desire of every redeemed heart to respond, now listen to what I'm saying, appropriately to who God is and what God has done for them. When we read, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, that is a call to an appropriate response. It's not saying, look, I know you're not terribly excited, like maybe sometimes a your wife was going to throw you a surprise party and you found out about it and, and you're not too pleased. And she goes, well, could you at least act excited? Could you at least act surprised? Could you act and pretend like you're enjoying this? And, and so you, you go through the motions. Brethren, our times of praise to God are not to be mere motions. 
And it ought not simply to be some kind of felt oppressive duty. But rather, Lord, let me understand who you are and what you have done unto the end that I will respond again appropriately. And this text is a call for the engagement of the whole person, the inward soul, my soul and all that is within me. And it's a call not only for us, but it is a call for others. Because the psalmist begins, bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he reminds you of what he's done. He's, he doesn't say who forgives all my iniquities, but yours. And so the desire is, I want you to enter in to this praise as well. Now, this psalm is the first of four in a row that focus on the goodness of God from the perspective of creation to the time of the exile. The psalm begins again with personal praise and then exhorts the reader to this individual praise and then moves to the goodness of God in preserving his people in the time of the exodus and the wilderness and then finally a call to all the faithful and all the heavenly host and all the material creation to offer praise to God. Now the psalm begins with a stirring up of the soul. And it's a stirring up of the soul again to bless the Lord. Now, this language of blessing the Lord may seem a, a bit strange to us, perhaps. Uh, now, we know we are to do it. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We generally think of God blessing us, and God blessing us is different than our blessing God. And we saw recently in the book of Hebrews that the greater is the one who blesses the lesser, and so in that sense, God pours out his blessing on us. But what in blessing, what we're doing is we are speaking well of God. We are articulating the praises of God. Now, in stating this, that he desires to bless the Lord and how he desires to bless the Lord. That is, as we said a moment ago, with the whole man. He also seems to recognize that this is not as easy or as common as it should be. The fact that he is stirring himself up, the fact that he is talking to himself the fact that he is in some ways arguing with himself or stirring himself up, or we could use the language, he's, he's, he is grabbing his indifferent soul by the lapels and shaking him, saying, why are you having such a hard time entering into the praise of God? You ought not just to worship the Lord with your lips, but with your heart, and that you have been or that you are in danger of forgetting, he says, all his benefits. That's what he, so he says here, bless him and forget not. He's talking to his soul. Now, why would he need to talk to himself that way? Well, it is a reality, brethren, that praise is not as often nor as heartfelt as it should be, even among the redeemed. And because God is good to all and his tender mercies are over all of his works, 
There is also this sense in which all of the created order, all rational beings ought to render thanks to God. And God notes that. The Lord Jesus noted, you recall, the, the one of the ten lepers that came back to give thanks to God for their healing. And, and whether we say that's a general statistic that about 10% offer the praise to God that they ought, he is recognizing, and we do see in that event, that praise to God is not as common, again, nor as heartfelt as it ought to be. One of the reasons for the judgment of God coming upon the earth, according to Romans chapter 1, is in part due, not just to man's outward wickedness, but due to his ingratitude. And coupled with many other gross sins is the knowledge that neither were they thankful. The psalmist says, as one translation says, praise the Lord, I tell myself, and never forget the good things he has done for me. And that is that it is good and right and proper for us to speak to ourselves and to stir ourselves up to a reasonable gratitude. There is an expression that my wife came across some years ago. We were reading the, the book at the same time, but she got to it a little uh, before I did. Choosing Gratitude is the name of the book. And in that book, there is a line by Alexander McLaren, an old, I believe, Scottish writer who said something to this effect, that we should cultivate, listen to the language, cultivate a buoyant sense of the crowded kindnesses of God in our lives. A buoyant sense. A joyful, happy sense. But we need to cultivate it. Of what he called the crowded kindnesses. So, you know what it is to be crowded, right? It's not like if, if, we, if, if, if the kindness of God was in an elevator. It would be jam-packed. It would be standing room only. It would be you can't breathe because of it. That is, if we look at it and if we study it properly. If you go to our house, you'll see as you walk in the door on the wall that you would see as you walk in. Uh, Becky made years ago a poster with that line, cultivate a, a, a joyful sense, a buoyant sense of the crowded kindnesses of God in your daily life. And she wrote on it, on there, some of the spiritual and eternal things that God has done. And then encouraged us, me and the kids and herself and other visitors. There was a marker there for years. I don't know if it's still there. I don't think it's still there. Uh, but you could go in there and if you thought of one of the kindnesses of God in your life, that you would write it down. Now that board is full of many different things that express this reality. Cultivate. That is, respond actively to your life. Think about the ways in which God has been so good to you. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to focus our attention upon some of the physical and spiritual ways in which God has been good to us. I'm going to help us to remember his mercies and his kindnesses 
and the good things that he has done. Now, we're going to be looking together uh, here primarily at verses 3 through uh, 5, and I'm going to deal with the physical first and then with the spiritual as we consider the goodness of God. So let's consider the goodness of God manifested, first of all, physically in our lives. Now, in this, I'm addressing everybody who's here. Anybody who can hear with understanding what I'm saying, that is, you don't need to be a Christian for you to be grateful to God for what he's done. So Thursday is intended to be a day of thanksgiving to God, not just thanksgiving. It's not just a time. I I, I read a book years ago in which the the secular writer said he loves thanksgiving because it's a good time to remember all the people that I'm thankful for and to. No, that's not what Thanksgiving's about. You know, you can do that and that's fine. But to whom do these blessings flow? From whom do these blessings flow? That's the question that we are asking. And so in verses, verse four, we read this of our God, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So as we consider the physical manifestation of the goodness of God, three things are here set forth. The first is that he redeems your life from destruction. The word destruction is a word that is sometimes translated in the scriptures as the pit. Or the ditch. But it most commonly has reference in the word to the grave. We read in Psalm 56 and verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. You have kept, excuse me, have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living? That's the idea. Now there is a rich spiritual application of this truth that we naturally think of when we think about redeeming our life from the pit or redeeming our life or our soul from destruction. And that if we are believers, and this is going to get into what we're going to talk about more fully in a moment, that our God is the God who delivers us from hell. And we have said, and we will say again, if that is all that God ever did for us, If he redeemed your life from the destruction to which your soul was righteously heading. And he redeemed you with the blood of his son and purchased you a place in the kingdom of God that you would live there forever. Then we can engage in the kind of praise we saw in Revelation chapter 5. Now while that's true, that's not what's being referenced here. We don't know when David wrote this psalm. I'm going to argue along with Spurgeon that he wrote this most likely at the end of his life. And that's going to have some very powerful lessons, if that is the case, certainly to teach us. But as you read the life of David, there were many times in which David underwent physical deliverance. He tells the story when we are first really introduced to David. He tells the story of the time that he fought with lions and bears. 
And he wasn't kidding. Really did that. And then, as we are introduced to him, of course, there is his battle with the giant Goliath. And then following his battle with Goliath, there is the wrath of the jealous king. And there are the Psalms in which David speaks repeatedly of fear for his life in Psalm 27. An army is encamped around me. David, as he comes to the end of his life, is a seasoned warrior who has been in battle, pursued by enemies over and over again, and then also faced, at times, a variety of sicknesses or diseases that he feared would take his life. And yet here he is, alive and well. And while for the believer, there is always that sense that death is gain. you will note how rare it would be that we would pray for death or for anyone to die. There is a blessing in life is what I am saying. And so when somebody says, well, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and to depart is far better, you don't say, well, then let's pray for Paul to die. Or that when somebody comes, becomes ill, Lord, please, because it is so much better. No, the writers express a desire to remain in the land of the living, not just David, but others. And if you are here today and you are alive, think at times of the activity of God in preserving your life and how little you have to do with almost all of it. How many of you have consciously been causing your heart to beat? How many of you have been aware of your need to take in and exhale, exhale air? All the things that go on, all the things that must take place, all the chemical balances that must be there in your body and how passive you are to most of them and even unaware of most of them. You have body parts that you don't even know you have unless you're a doctor, most likely. If I said to you that somebody got into an accident and they lost their this, you're like, I didn't even know I had one. And I didn't even know what it did. Again, the functioning of your hearts and lungs while you, let's really get passive, while you are zonked out, snoring in deep REM sleep. God is keeping you alive. God is keeping all your inward parts. Moment by moment, the handiwork of God is seen in your preservation. And then you think of the times when he has kept you from danger or from harm. Some here have even been on the field of battle. Some have been in exceedingly dangerous situations. But you think about just traveling. I've Traveled two years ago. It's two year, this is a, I got back two years ago from, I had two months of sabbatical. Driving out there and driving back covered some 4,000 miles on the road. Just driving there and back, 4,000 miles. Passing hundreds or thousands of cars and trucks. Some within inches of our car. And yet, God preserved us. 
there have been times, even the other day, I, 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 when I'm going down the stairs now, I often go down the stairs with great gratitude because despite being getting older and how I look, I can still kind of sprint down the stairs and even occasionally, when I say sprint, understand that comes in a certain context. But I can, you know, bounce down the stairs and I can go up them quickly at times if I want to or if I need to. But the other day I was going down and, and I almost missed a, a step holding a cup of coffee in the morning and, and my heel didn't quite get where it should have been and there was the handrail. And just that moment of thanksgiving, Lord, thank you. What would that have been like? What would that have looked like? What would that have felt like? And what would have been the consequences of it? How many times, how many meals you have eaten without choking? Medical procedures that you underwent that, that may well have saved your life. All of these things are traceable to the God of heaven. And then he says, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. The word crowns could also be translated as surrounds. It's a Hebrew word that is, it, it's known as, I'm going I'm to throw this little Hebrew out. I'm, I, it's known as a PL participle. So some of you know what that is now. And what that speaks of is God's intensive, personal, purposeful activity. That's what's behind it. Which is to say that the goodness and mercy that surrounds you is not a matter of luck or chance or happenstance. It's not just that God is just indiscriminately and like unconsciously kind. God is purposefully kind. That's the idea. Now, I, 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 if I had millions of dollars and, and they were all in, let's say, five, $5 bills and I went out to some crowded place and I reached into a bag and I began to just throw it around like that, that would be indiscriminate kindness. I wouldn't be thinking, I know your need and your need and I know who you are and I know how much you need and I'm doing this because I know you're hungry and I'm doing this because I know that you're lonely and I'm doing... See, God doesn't just take his love and throw it out like so many bills. God is good. So what he's saying is, God, in God doing this, he's being good to you. So he's talking, again, he's talking to you. We can look at the words in this way. God is actively surrounding your life with good things because he loves you. All the good things that you enjoy. All the benefits that daily surround you. I thought about preaching on that text of blessed be the God who daily weighs us down with benefits. The daily benefits that surround your life. And whatever they may be, in, in whatever particular time, and, and we live at a particular time in history. And we live in a particular nation right now where certain things are able to be enjoyed. And whatever they were, are like compared to what they used to be and whatever they will be in the future, we still have to say God is mighty good to us. 
if you don't like your house or you think you live in a some subpar dwelling, I went through a period of my life where I groused a little bit about my house. I may have shared this. I can't remember. This is back when we had exchange students. And we'd have an exchange student come in, and all their friends turned out they were, like, super rich. And I'd say, can you drive me over to, you know, Michelle's house and, you know, like, that castle over there? Uh, one house I drove, I thought, is that the, that was their driveway. I thought it was just a road. <laughs> and a pool in the back and all of this. And I just felt like, well, we got, I said, sorry. I'm like, I apologize. I'm sorry we couldn't provide you with all this American extravagance. And you have to realize, look, if King Solomon walked into my house and turned on the tap and felt hot water, he'd fall at your feet like you were a magician. To turn, what's, that? what's that? That's called air conditioning. It cools you off when it's hot. Whatever it is, the modern conveniences... A nation devoid at this time of so many of the plagues. Talked about, is there a time in history that you'd want to live other than now? Medically, health wise, convenience wise? Whatever it may be that God has kept us from, that, that we're not dealing with, that past generations saw so many of their, their families, their children wiped out, that we have good reason to believe that our expectant mothers are not going to die when they give birth. You think of the blessings of your home, your family, your marriage, your children, whatever, the grandchildren, whatever it might be. He surrounds you. David uses loving kindness. It's a word found over 200 times in our Old Testament. It's that Hebrew word hesed, which is often expounded as covenant mercies or covenantal love. It's sometimes translated as goodness and at other times kindness or mercy or as favor. And while we again tend to view this spiritually... There is also a great manifestation of this materially in our lives. The term tender mercies is a word that referred to the womb or to the inward parts. It's, uh, <coughs> we tend to think of our heart being where we feel. In the Hebrew, the heart was often the mind and where you felt was in your guts. It doesn't sound as nice. I love you with all my stomach. <laughs> And all my intestines, but that's, that's, how they, that's how they thought. It's really, in some ways, really, really you feel sometimes when you are feeling a great swell of emotional love. It can often feel down there. So again, it's not merely showing good. It's not merely dispensing good. It's doing good from love and pity and mercy. There are people in your life who will do you good that may be uh, unlovable and unloving. My garbage man does me good. I have no idea how he feels about me. I, to my awareness, he has never taken that garbage and looked at my house and just thought, love you, man. I have had nurses take very good care of me when I have been in the hospital. Some of them were great. Others... You know, I, I doubt they were doing what they did because they loved me. 
They were doing it because it was their duty. And God does what he does toward us as his people out of a heart of love. And this is all the more wonderful again when we consider that this world, and right, and we look at the world right now, and, and if we pictured it in some ways, it might look all beaten up and broken and horrible. There's wars going on and, and all of this. And yet from another perspective, there's so much goodness and kindness and love and mercy being showcased. And when we consider that our world is under a curse, and we consider that there is a coming judgment, and then note the, the, the generosity of God includes people and lands that don't honor him or love him or serve him. We can all the more see his generosity. Jesus said it in this way in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35. To us as his disciples, but love your enemies. Do good and lend. Hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the unthankful and kind to the evil. God give, gave this beautiful day to everybody in this, everybody in, in this city gets to enjoy it. The righteous and the evil. The psalmist is again reminding us that, that we are not to be ignorant of where these things come from. Don't just enjoy it. Remember that God gave it to you and remember the heart with which God gave it. And then he tells us that this goodness is man. This is the third thing that his goodness is manifested in the daily provision of food and the effect of that food upon us. Now, you may have a translation that does not read the way that the King James and New King James, if that is, you look at it and say, well, I don't see this issue of the mouth. Because the word that's used here is a word that doesn't <coughs> always mean mouth. It's a word that technically means ornaments. And even the ornaments that were used on certain horses. But he fills something, something ornamental, as it were, in your life with these good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. So some translations say simply, he fills your life with good things. And one translation, he satisfies your desires or he satisfies you with good. But I'm going to argue in light of the other words in this verse that it is best to see this in light of the food that we eat. It is food that renews our youth like the eagles. So I want to consider three things about the food that you eat. The first is that he satisfies. Satisfies your mouth. Satisfies your mouth. I had, I should have asked for permission to use this story. <laughs> Years ago, it's a famous story in my house. When, after I'd had my heart attack and we were trying to eat more healthfully. Uh, and that meant at one point kind of being like vegetarians type things. My kids could tell you these stories better than I could. 
Uh, but one night, uh, Beck made something that we have lovingly referred to through the years as veggie loaf. <laughs> there was meat loaf and it was veggie loaf. And Beck put it on my plate and I wrestled. <laughs> and I said, would one of you give thanks? I didn't know that I could work myself up. <laughs> Terrible. But that's a rare thing, isn't it? It satisfies. That refers to two things. It refers, first of all, to the fact that there is enough. And secondly, it refers to its taste and variety. I had read a book some years ago that was talking about God's goodness in this area. Well, they weren't trying to show God's goodness in the area. They were just giving facts. That there are 30,000 types of edible plants on earth. And that 93% of humans only eat from 11 of those sources. Corn, rice, wheat, potatoes, Sorghum, millet, beans, barley, rye, oats, and cassava, 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 cassava. Imagine God gave you 30,000 things to enjoy and you say, well, I'm just going to. But what he's bringing out there, again, is this fills, fills your mouth. God gives food and enough food and a remarkable variety of food for us to enjoy and to benefit from. This renews your life, he says, like the eagle. And this is a reference to the molting process in which it, the old feathers of a, of a bird come loose and new feathers come forth so that if you looked at the bird at one day and then looked at him on another, how much younger and more vibrant he looks or the shedding of the skin of a snake so that it looks new. I think, I don't know if we're the first generation to come up with the expression hangry, a certain anger you feel when you're hungry, but you know what it's like. You're hungry, you're weary, you're, you're, you're irritable, you're not doing so well, inconversant, and then all of a sudden you start eating, you eat a little bit more, and then the light shines in the eyes, and suddenly you're talking, and you're laughing, and you're, and you're happy again. And there is good reason why if a man is to pray at all, he will pray over his food. And it is good and right and proper to render thanks to God before or during or even after the eating of the bounty that God provides. Now, all that I have said here again refers in some way or other to every single one of us. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, an agnostic, a, a seeker, an atheist, whatever you are. And whether or not your soul has been stirred to respond appropriately, God has been good to you. And the Bible tells us that his goodness leads us to repentance. That that goodness that softens us to see that the God who bids us look to him and live is a God who overflows in kindness and has all the days of your life. But now let's turn our attention to the spiritual benefits that God bestows on his people. 
And I'm going to look here just at verse 3. It's all I'm going to do uh, today. Uh, we have others that we could look at in regard to this. Uh, some years ago, I preached a message on 10 reasons why we ought to be thankful from this text. And I'm going to just focus here upon verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity, iniquities, excuse me, who heals all your diseases. Now, that may confuse some uh, because I'm using diseases here and not with the physical, um, but bear with me for a moment. Let's deal with the obvious and glorious first, who forgives all your iniquities. Now, this is speaking to us as believers, who forgives all your iniquities. The word iniquity is one of several Old Testament words for sin. So you have sin, which you're aware of is a word basically meaning to, to miss the mark. You have trespass or transgression. That is to step somewhere that you ought not to. But iniquities is a very special word because it points to more of the felt horror of sin. It's the shame of sin. It's the guilt of sin. It's the twistedness, the perversity, the recognition that what I do and what I say that falls short of the glory of God comes from my heart. That's what it's getting at with iniquities. So that is to say this, it is more than the intellectual acknowledgement that I've done some things that I ought not to have done. So I a preacher will stand up and say, now listen, we've all sinned, right? You've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who can here say that you've never told a lie or you've never been angry or that you've never lusted or you've never been discontent or you've never done this and you've never done that? And everybody will say, yeah, you got me. Sure, I've done it. I've done some things that I ought not to have done. I have left undone things commanded to me. This is the, this is the heart that says, I have done that and it's horrible. This is what causes a man not only to say, I am a sinner. This iniquities, the, the felt sense of iniquities is what makes us beat on our breast and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's the kind of thing that makes him in the language of, the, of a hymn that we sing, not just I'm guilty, but I'm vile. That says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't know, I'm not going to ask how many of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket. I don't know if anybody here wants to say, I got a speeding ticket and I wasn't speeding. Most of us, if we get a speeding ticket, it's because we were guilty. And we might say that there are degrees of guilt. But in the eyes of the law, five miles over the speed limit is breaking the law as much as 30 miles or 40 miles. This is what posted, that's the law. So if you were going five to 10 miles over the speed limit, which many do on a regular basis on a highway. So driving down to Gene Snyder, some parts at 65, it's not at all uncommon to see somebody going 70 or 70 to 80, uh, no, you know, 70 to 75, let's say, some, certainly more than that. But if the policeman were to pull you over and you were going 70, it was 65, and said you were speeding. 
you'd be guilty, but some of you would also be offended. How dare you? You're giving me a ticket for this? There's no, you know, you see what I mean? Yeah, you broke the law, but you don't care. It seems excessive. But now imagine that you were texting and driving and turn around and look at something and you hit someone. And the result of it was the death of a child. And now you see that you were not only driving recklessly or you were not only speeding, but now you feel the effect of it, the guilt of it, the remorse, the desire that if you could do anything to go back in time before it happened so that it could somehow be wiped away. Brethren, that's iniquity. And the problem with some, sometimes why this, what I'm talking about here is not glorious to you is because your sin is too intellectual. But you've never felt it. And this is why some of you aren't Christians. Because you've never felt it. One said, till, till, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Christ is not precious. And his atoning work and his death on the cross means little because your sins mean little. And the Savior said, he who is forgiven little loves little. And he who is forgiven much loves much. And if the reason why you have such little love for the Savior, it may well be because you've never seen your sin as you ought to see it. Now, as I mentioned, some have debate as to whether David wrote this psalm. And it doesn't necessarily really in the final analysis matter. But Spurgeon, as I said, was a firm believer that David wrote this as an older man. And what had David done in his latter years? And what shame and stain and regret and remorse that he felt. A man who felt the sting of his sin and the lingering effects of his sin. He lived every day with the consequences of his crimes against God. But he also knew that those iniquities and the iniquity of everyone who repents and believes that they were forgiven. Forgiven in God's sight. How blessed is he whose trespass has been forgiven. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. And if you here are a Christian and you feel blessed for no other reason... The cupboard's empty. Your relationships are not what you want them to be. Your physical condition is hard. But if you have been forgiven, you'll go to heaven and you'll see a lamb as if slain. And you'll worship him. A blessed is a person to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. If you, Lord, were to mark iniquity, O oh Lord, who could stand? But he says there is forgiveness with you. To forgive is to cover. To have God cover. You see, if you cover your iniquities, you'll not prosper. If God covers your iniquity with the blood of Jesus, you'll know blessing. To forgive is to cover or to send away. 
There was a price to pay for sin in this world and in the world to come. Sin must be atoned for. It must be covered if any man is to stand in the presence or the sight of a holy God. Can you imagine being called to... The illustration is not as good as it used to be. I, I, I used to use an illustration of being called to, uh, into Buckingham Palace to have tea with the queen. Charles, you know. <laughs> but imagine some years ago you got called. So for some of you, that would be, you know, you don't have to be an Anglophile or a, a, a royal to think that would be something. Can you imagine, though, as you were getting toward Buckingham Palace, dressed in your finery, that you slipped in the manure of the horses that are part of the queen's guard and you fell face forward into them. And they said, come on, it's your appointment. And you'd say, how can I go in there? How can I go in there smelling like this? How can I go in there looking like this? Isn't there a place where I can go and where I can wash? Are there clothes that you can put upon me so that I can enter into this noble presence and do so with joy? The thought of some that you will be able to go into the presence of God and somehow the little, you know, whatever good thing you think that you've done, the I'm not so bad my friend, my illustration pales in comparison to what it would have been like. Righteous men were told they could not look upon God and live. And yet there is in the presence of God those who have committed all manner of sin and blasphemy and uncleanness. And they have done it repeatedly. And yet there is a welcome. There is a come to me and come with joy. And whatever our sins have been and whatever they are and whatever they will be, there is a place where there is a fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Now, I'm going to argue that closely related to this is the line, he heals all your diseases. Now, we may take this and put this in our first category this morning and, and say that it refers to physical ailments and infirmities. And there have been some, of course, who have taken this as some kind of charismatic promise that God is going to, you know, that there's healing in the atonement and, and he will heal every disease that everybody has. And if you don't, it's because you're not, don't have enough faith or, or anything like that. Well, we, we, we can look at this physically without going to that. We, we can say, certainly, any time that you have been ill and have been made better, glory to God. And if God used means to help you to feel better, I, I'm so thankful that there's, ibuprofen and things like that. I'm, I'm very thankful for things. Our brother Justin, uh, sister Rachel recently have, have undergone surgery. The blessings uh, of these things. The, uh, Bill Hughes shared a story years ago, a, a book that he's really enjoyed of some woman going in for a mastectomy without any anesthesia. And that's how it was for hundreds of years. 
and you just had to take it. God has been exceedingly good and kind to us. If you have known illness and are now better, broken bones, and they have been healed, the marvel of that. See, a doctor can set a broken bone. He can't heal a broken bone. He can't make it knit back together. He can stitch your skin. But what, why is it that when the, when the stitches are taken out, the arm doesn't fly open again? Because God has made the body in this way, and God has brought about this healing. But I want us to consider that this reality of sin, iniquity, and disease are woven together. He forgives and he heals. He forgives iniquity, he heals disease. And I I want us to see that this healing here, I believe, is a spiritual healing. For sin not only corrupts, it, 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 it wounds, it disfigures, and ultimately it kills. And you see sin and disease woven together in many places in the scriptures. You see how David puts it in Psalm 38. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. What does it feel like to be in the grip of what you feel is an unforgiven sin? To be in the grip of a guilty conscience? It may not show up on an MRI. David might have gone to the doctor and said, I I can't see anything wrong with you. And he says, but there's no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because, not because of a virus, but because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I'm bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are full of inflammation and there's no soundness in my flesh. Well, here's the thing. And what if that sin were forgiven? What if the heavy load was taken off? What if he knew that when he looked, as it were, into the eyes of his father, he saw a God reconciled to him in Christ? You see this language again in a place like Psalm 107, 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Now again, I am not arguing here that this is necessarily a physical manifestation of sin. Or that every time you sin or, or every time you have a disease or every time something's wrong with you, it's because of your sin. It's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that sin can take even a physical toll upon us or that he uses the language of disease to describe the desperation of the soul. There have been studies shown of how many people in mental institutions could be released if only they could rid themselves of guilt. 
and they're there and they're sorrowful and they're in, as it were, a cage that's built by the sense of their sin. And there's no one to come along and say, my son, my daughter, your sins, though they are many, are forgiven. Though your sins were as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. And to see the joy that that forgiveness brings. So he says again, Psalm 107, and because of their iniquities, they were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he saved them out of their distresses. You see what happens is, it's a spiritual issue. And once they knew forgiveness and mercy, they were well. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Psalm 147 in verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds. His power heals the leprous soul. He opens the eyes of the blinded soul and he gives ear to the deaf soul and makes the dead soul to live. And at what price? Is there forgiveness and healing with God? By his stripes, you are healed. Though free to us, costly to God. It would be by his stripes that we would be healed. It would be by the blood of a lamb unblemished that we could stand forgiven. And that we who have been filthy and diseased as it were, can approach the throne of grace with boldness and there find mercy. If your hope this morning is that when you die, when your heart ceases to beat and you open, as it were, your eyes in another world, that you will behold the God before whom sinless angels veil their faces. The one that when, I, when Moses said, can I see your glory? He said, you can't see it and live. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. That when Isaiah saw God on his throne, he said, woe is me. And that you'll stand there. You'll stand there with exceeding joy and you'll look upon that one that your soul loves because every iniquity every sin everything that you have ever done that would have placed you forever in a sinner's hell was covered by the blood of the lamb if that if again if nothing else in life were true than that When I've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I don't know that I'll be thanking God for sweet potato casserole that I will happily enjoy, should God give me life, on Thursday. Turkey and gravy, some magnificent mac and cheese, the enjoyment of having my children all around and my grandchildren but in 10,000 years when I've been there 10,000 years and 
this life is perhaps in many ways an echo and, as it were, a distant memory. I will still look at the Lamb and with all my heart bless God that my sins and my iniquities have been covered. Bless the Lord, O my soul. How do we respond? What language can we borrow to thank our dearest friend for his dying sorrow, for his pity without end? How do we thank this one who had every right to cast us into the pit and yet surrounds us with loving kindness and with mercy? Who in an hour or so from now is going to fill your mouth with good things? And he's going to do it again tonight, and he's going to do it tomorrow, and he's going to do it the day after. And to say to our soul, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget that these mercies, which are poured out in so many ways so generously upon a hostile world, are given with such tender affection to us who belong to the Savior. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time together in your word to consider these truths. We pray that you would write them upon our hearts and aid us, Heavenly Father, in giving our praise to you. We know, Lord, there are many things that would rob us of our joy and rob us of our gratitude. Uh, Aid us, living God, and being stirred afresh to be grateful to our great God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.